this Cubs era is is threatening to go down uh, the, like the, the 1985 Bears, a, a team that dominated when it won its championship, ended years and generations of futility and longing and waiting, and finally was special when they won and suggested that there was going to be another one, at least another one. And now it could end as just one championship while that window was open. And that, to me, would be historically disappointing and indelible because that team seemed capable of so much more. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week from Chicago by the morning co-host of the Molly and Haw show, a friend of mine who uh, we went to Cuba together. Uh, back when he was the lead sports columnist there at the Chicago Tribune, uh, outriding all of us on that trip, David Haw. David, thank you so much for joining me here. I know you've gone radio, so I completely expect to be not only outclassed as a writer back then, but now outclassed as a podcast host. So here we go. And, and surely I'll insult you by the end of this, too, if I'm saying true to character, right? Because the, the radio guy is <laughs> right. more acerbic. No, thanks for having me, Derek. I, I still do write. Uh, occasionally for for our website 670thescore.com i miss that uh, a lot but um the daily radio thing is is a grind but it's a fun it's a fun one especially here in chicago and especially this season where we have a lot of not only <laughs> good baseball but a lot of very interesting controversial baseball and characters characters just yes. galore i mean there probably aren't two better contrasts of character than the two managers you have than David Ross and Tony La Russa. Um, so I want to start there. So how's uh, how's Tony's bid for the American League Manager of the Year going? Well, not, not off to the best start. <laughs> I think that's fair to say, conservatively speaking. I'm not even sure that he would be, you know, voted certainly the best manager in town, you know, and David Ross doesn't have a ton of experience it's been it's been clumsy, um, and and it has been some of it. Tony's doing some of it. I think uh, the the organizational um, hierarchy has let him down in terms of the the infrastructure mm. uh, when it comes to certain things like not knowing the rules and 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 the people in the dugout surrounding him. But I think that it's fair to say here we are. You know, on, on May twentieth that Tony La Russa, uh, the people that thought that he would need some time to readjust and recalibrate after being out of the dugout for a decade, they've been proven correct. And it has been a little bit clumsier than than I think uh, some people might have expected, and certainly the White Sox would have wanted us to believe. So are they in first place despite some of that, or is some of why they're in first place because they're united against them? I mean, they, they're, they're playing well. Um, they've had some significant injuries, one significant injury that stands out, but you know, they're getting contributions and they, they are the best team in that division. Right. And they're playing like it. They are. And they just won 10 out of 13 against the Royals and the twins. But I think that to hold them to that standard is too low because winning Mm. that division isn't enough. This is a team that has embraced this world series or bus mentality since the end of last season, since they launched Ricky Renteria and they went out and got Tony Larusa. Why? Well, because they thought the window was open and they could go out and seize this opportunity to compete for a World Series. So let's hold them to the standard that they set for themselves. And I think that the talent has been 
good enough to overcome and be in first place and to be this good in spite of Tony LaRusa. The it's not just it's not just the kind of nonsense we've been discussing this week in terms of what he has said publicly and the grand defender of baseball and the <laughs> gatekeeper of the of the sport. It's been certain decisions at the wrong times that frankly arguably could have cost them victories. So what Tony does, and I said this this morning, and I, and I think it's true, it, he sort of reinvigorated the debate over how many games a manager uh, affects in a given season. And with the White Sox, there have been probably too many uh, this year, but they have had the talent to overcome it. And, and that is a credit to the roster that Rick Hahn has put together. That's interesting. Some managers will tell you that they can only lose games, not win them for the team. And some of that is you know, to kind of build up trust within the clubhouse and say that, you know, I'm not the grand genius pushing all the levers and buttons that then makes players win. Um, Some of it is cover, too, because then they can say, look, man, those guys go out there and they don't execute. That's why we're losing. It's not me. Um, but some but some managers, I think, generally mean that is that their job is to put the position, the players in the best position to win. And if they make a mistake that costs a game, that's that's a loss on them. Whereas if they make a move, that wins a game, that's an execution on the player. And I, I kind of like that thinking, um, you know, and I heard it sometimes from Tony. What what really stands out to me, um, you're right. I mean, he kind of comes across as the arbiter of all things baseball, right? Like that he's storming back into the game after this absence to save it from itself in some of his comments. Do you think that there is – how does that play in the clubhouse? I know it's hard to tell maybe via Zoom, but, how, but we kind of get – hints through social media and stuff and you know that team well how's that playing in the clubhouse well I think it, it's very difficult and you know this better than anybody because of how how you cover the Cardinals you, you know how how dy- the dynamic is different because we're, we're not in the in the clubhouse you don't have these conversations and it's difficult to do anything except for just observe so the cues that we have gotten okay Tony LaRusso's uh the gap between Tony and the team seems to be widening. And, and I, and I said this yesterday morning after, you know, after the fact that he uh, publicly, you know, uh, can condoned the twins throwing behind your mean Mercedes. And when he publicly called out his own player for being clueless, for having the audacity of swinging at a three and O pitch and hitting it out of the ballpark in a blowout game that they had already conceded when they had a position player throwing, to Mercedes. It was 15 to four at the time. I think that everything that happened as a result of that made that gap wider between the clubhouse and Tony. So the, you know, it's not so much, I, I, the the White Sox lost a game, you know, yesterday and after that happened. uh, uh, But I I think more importantly, he he may have lost his team. And, and I don't know, except for, you know, time will tell if that can be, you know, overcome. But I'm not sure that it matters because right. I think in a weird way, in a, in a strange dynamic that Tony La Russa, by being himself, by being the guy who decided to defend the game more so than he defended his own player, somehow he may have galvanized his own clubhouse against him or not even against him, but together because little things you see, Tim Anderson the way the players communicate these days, going on Instagram live and mm-hmm. and during the, the team flight saying, you know, we, we're still going to swing at 3-0. and uh, We're still swinging on 3-0. and Lucas Giolito, after a gem of a game he threw yesterday, saying we love home runs here. 
They have supported Jermaine Mercedes. And if that's at the expense of Tony La Russa, I don't think anybody in the Sox clubhouse cares. So, yeah, you, you offered up like kind of the moment, right? Jermaine Mercedes, the the White Sox were up 15-4. Um, he gets a 3-0 count. There's a 47-mile-per-hour gravity ball. It's not so much a breaking ball as just kind of like a get-it-over ball. Um Tony says that he it well, Tony called it a big mistake in part because he insists that he was on the top step yelling, take, take, take. And they were trying to get him to take. So that was the sign. And part of it was, hey, look, you have to do what the team says. If you get the sign to take, we're counting on you to take, not swing for the fences. Um, but I think also need some context with your main Mercedes, right? Like he, this is a guy who was in the minors since Tony last managed. He was in the minors in 2011 as a 20, as an 18 year old, and he's got nearly 3,100 plate appearances at levels before the majors. Before this season, he had one plate appearance in the season. I mean, this is a guy who is swinging for the time of his life. Right? He might right. not get three seasons to hit as many bombs as he wants. So what's he going to do? Turn down a pitch to hit a home run in the majors that goes on his baseball card when he knows. He's got a short window of time to do so. I, I think that has to be considered. I do too. And I and I think that, you know, the, a couple other things factor in. And I guess number one is that, okay, Mercedes hasn't been the ideal teammate or, or White Sox player. He, he was late for uh, one game because of traffic. He's a guy who clearly is learning how to be a major leaguer off the field as well. And, and there's some things about he is a fun-loving guy and maybe his focus sometimes – isn't up to Tony LaRusso's standards. So there seems to be, this is not the first time, let's just say, that maybe Tony has been perceived to have been picking on your mean Mercedes mm-hmm. approach publicly. But here's the thing. You know, th- this is a team in the White Sox that has marketed, promoted, and embraced the idea. Their hashtag on their social media account is change the game. You know, they, <laughs> they are – they are the bat flip mentality team. This is Tim Anderson's uh, combination of flair and flamboyance that they want to exude. And now you've got a manager who that was a, that was one of the biggest questions when Tony took the, the job. The first ones he had to address was how are you going to coexist with this already very you know dynamic group of players led by Tim Anderson who seemed to be contrary to what you've always represented. And he said he could do it. Well, this is the first real litmus test, and it's not going well. So that is at the crux of this as well, because you know the, the unwritten rule book that you know Larusa helped author no longer is in print, right. and I think that's part of it that you know you have to look at. That's the challenge that he faces, and I think that's the reality the Sox are now kind of trying to to confront. In covering Tony Larusa with the the Cardinals, it wasn't like they didn't bat flip. I mean, Albert Pujols had an epic bat flip in Pittsburgh off of Oliver Perez. I mean, it was a, it was more of a waterfall than a bat flip. It was just remarkable, and he had no problem with that because you know what that meant is that they won, and it was an essential home run. And you know, he he had guys who played with flamboyance, but he would always talk about the points. What are you going to give to the team, and what does the team ask of you? And if the team asks you to be there on time and put in your pregame work, those are points you earn that you can then cash in on, you know, some flamboyance. And he said, what, what you cross the line is when you walk around with a dig me t-shirt, that was his big phrase, like dig me, don't dig the team, dig me and dig what I can do. And that always kind of rubbed him the wrong way. But even guys who did that, if he helped them win, he was fine with like, that was his ultimate motivation was to win. 
And I'll tell you, Dave, when I first heard his comments, I thought, man, he's playing a game here. Whether he's trying to galvanize the team against him to give them a common kind of goal, and that's possible. Or he's saying things privately to those guys saying, hey, keep going, keep going. And then saying something publicly that takes it away from their opponents. And it makes it really difficult. You know, like if he's saying, hey, you know, Mercedes, I I think that's I think that's wrong. I think what he did is wrong. I think, you know, we shouldn't do that in the game. Then it it makes it hard for an opponent the next time up to go, well, we're going to hit 3-0 or we're going to throw at him if he's trying to take it away from us. And I wondered if he was playing that game, if he was trying to think a step ahead and, and maybe that, you know, backfires on him. But if that was maybe that he was saying something privately that he wasn't public. Well, I would I would think that would be really uh, shrewd on his part. It ha- we haven't seen any other indications that that is the case, only because a couple things that he did say publicly kind of suggest that no matter what he said privately, it'd be very difficult. He's yeah. creating this wave of, of perception that is going to, drown him in negativity you know he 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 called his own player clueless yeah i saw that that was after that's not you know we've both been covering sports a long time i I find the examples i could probably count on one hand of where a coach was that direct and blatant calling a player one of his own clueless and then he on the other hand then the next breath essentially endorsed and condoned the idea that the twins would retaliate and so you're, you have a, a manager calling his own player clueless and defending the opponent's right to come after his own guy. That's a hard that, that's that's hard to walk back. Yeah. That's hard to overcome publicly no matter what you've said privately. Yeah, and especially when everything's through Zoom. You know, like they can't right. – I mean, are they going to share a, a Brady Bunch box at some point in time, the two of them, and talk to the media together, whereas they could do that in a dugout, they could goof around. I mean, I don't know. I don't – that's a, I think that you make a great point. It's hard to walk back when you've used that kind of description, even if privately you're saying, look, I'm, I'm putting on a show here. I, I got your back. And when you then come out, you know, I think yesterday it was where, where Tony said, you know, he walked through the clubhouse and nobody gave him the Heisman. So <laughs> he wants people to buy into this idea that he didn't alienate anybody, even though a guy that you know well uh, in Lance Lynn, yeah, who you would think would be the number one defender publicly of Tony and has been, frankly, he's been a great White Sox player and great for the city here. Um, but he was disagreeing with the idea that, you know, you're me and Mercedes did something wrong. And Lance Lynn is as old school as they come. Uh, so to me, there are, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of things that Tony needs to uh, re- repair or can't ignore. And and what effect that has in the standings, I'm not sure it will have much effect in the standings, but certainly it might have more um, impact long-term on his you know, staying power here beyond this year because you have a lot of players in that clubhouse that have a lot more security, I think, and going to be here longer than Tony La Russa will be. Yeah, that's definitely I, – I, I like the line. I think Lance Lynn, if – you know, the, the White Sox resume play this weekend. If he doesn't show up with a desk at his locker after Tony La Russa says, that's why Lance has a locker and I have an office, then Lance is missing a chance. I, I think he ought to show up with a desk at his locker. It's a great maybe, idea. maybe a paperweight, um, maybe an old <laughs> rotary phone, something. If he sets up his locker as a, as an office, just to like, you know, that might deflate something that might de-escalate, as they say. Um, Lance is Lance is great. He's dry. 
Um, he's honest and he's a straight shooter. And, you know, in some ways, Tony might learn something from how he's handled it. How does uh, does winning cure all? I mean, is that is that what happens here? If, if they continue to win, then this is just a, a um, you know, a small flicker, a, a spark, not a brush fire. People always say that, and I've seen too many examples of it to, to automatically dismiss that. But but I do believe that if the White Sox win, there will be this feeling in Chicago that they have won in spite of their manager. And and I think that narrative has begun. Um, and, and I do believe, even though we're just, you know, we're a quarter of the way through the season, so it's a long season. But that's where I think we seem to be headed, is that the White Sox – have to had two major injuries. Now they're without Jose Abreu for a couple games, and they've had uh, some pitching injuries as well. And still, they're the best team in the American League. So there's this feeling that they can win in spite of Tony Larusa. And I do think that storyline is going to be a difficult one to dispel or ignore. And I think that's going to probably be the storyline of the summer on the South Side. And you touched on it. Is there? Is there a real sense that this is a one and done for him? This is a one come back, see if they can win a championship. He gets full closure on his time with the White Sox. Reinsdorf gets to unwind the clock of a move he made three generations ago. Is that right? Maybe four generations ago. Um, I guess it was back in the time of the geriatric millennials. So whenever that generation was, is that really how this ends, that it's one and done for him? It would be very difficult to envision him returning. Look, we're 44 games in. And besides the controversy we just just went into, he apologized for leaving a pitcher in too long, for mm-hmm. not knowing the rules of extra innings uh, this year. Uh, another another incident where he let, stuck with his pitcher too long, which he, he took some public accountability for. This has been clumsy, as I said at the beginning. So anything, I think right now people are wondering if he's going to finish the year, let alone return in 2022. So anything more than one and done would be a surprise right now as I sit here on May 20th. Have the White Sox encroached on the Cubs popularity at all? Has that changed the game and the charisma of the team and also the attention on Tony? Has that encroached at all on, on the hold the Cubs had on the city? It's a, it's a great question. I don't think the popularity would be the right way to say it because I think that the Cubs are – going to have their fan base. And there really isn't the crossover from the casual undecideds in, in Chicago. <laughs> there are a lot of undecideds. You know, people who are Cub fans are going to be Cub fans forever. What I think the Sox have done from a media perspective is that they have commanded some of the attention away from the Cubs. And so, as as you know, we can talk about, but I mentioned this morning, we don't really know sometimes how good of a job David Ross has done as the manager of the Cubs because – he hasn't received nearly the scrutiny that Tony Larusa has from sports talk radio, from a lot of the you know the, the traditional media sources. So much attention has been placed and scrutinized of, of what Tony has done that the Cubs have been generally left alone to be their 500 selves this year. So I don't know that that's ever going to change the dynamic in Chicago in terms of popularity. But but Tim Anderson and company and the way that they play. They have, I guess, if there were any slumbering Sox fans out there, they're awake now because they're excited now and because of the way that this team is full of young guys with talent and charisma and they look like they're going to be something special because this does appear to be 
even with Tony at the helm, you know, steering crookedly, this is a very special team. How are the Cubs looked upon? I mean, they were the 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 dynasty they were supposed to be. I mean, they they talked big, aimed big, spend big, and they won big, but they only won once. Uh, you know, it it was uh, a dynasty that fell before its time. So, how are they viewed? I mean, do, are they somewhat Teflon because David Ross and you know Jed Hoyer and Theo they brought they were part of a team that brought a World Series there? Well. I don't think no. I, I don't think so. I, I think what right now the Cubs are in the midst of is uh, is a lot of cynicism and, and mm. disappointment. You know they they are in the midst of a season that that um, there were very low expectations because of the way the off season was conducted. This was you know you had the U Darvish salary dump. You had you, you had the decision to you know uh, not go after and be aggressive in free agency until. Until you found a few dollars uh, laying around to go get Jake Arrieta and Jock Peterson, and right now, Derek, in the context of Chicago sports, the the, the this Cubs era is is threatening to go down uh, the like the the 1985 Bears. You know, the 2016 Cubs are the current examples of the 85 Bears, a, a team that dominated when it won its championship, ended years and generations of futility and longing and waiting, and finally was special when they won and suggested that there was going to be another one, at least another one. And now it could end as just one championship while that window was open. And that, to me, would be historically disappointing and indelible because that team seemed capable of so much more. That uh, That's that strikes close to home there, Dave. I don't have many, like I have baseball cards and stuff around my office here as I'm talking to you. I don't have many like team oriented things, but I do have a, a, a photo of the 85 bears here. My <laughs> office. Uh, that was, uh, that was probably the first um, non-baseball team that I fell for. And it was the first team that I ever rooted for so much and paid so much attention to that won a championship. All the baseball teams I did never did. Hey. And when you were celebrating 46 to 10 over the Patriots, you thought, oh my gosh, look at the, how young this team is. Look how good they are. They're going to be back. And if they're not going to be back next year, they're going to be back the year after that. And they're going to win at least one more Super Bowl. And, you know, when, when Chris Bryant threw to Anthony Rizzo and they threw their mitts in the air and they started to celebrate in 2016 World Series Championship, there was the same sense of anticipation in Chicago and maybe even yeah. around baseball. But no, that's not happened. And that to me, to some people right now, they're fearing the end of an era because the unloading will begin at the end of the season. I remember when I was a little kid distinctly watching that Super Bowl and going, oh, man, Walter Payton didn't get a touchdown. That's okay. right. He'll get one next year. Right, right. That's, that's the way so many people thought of it. And yet he was never, never to return there. Never to return and always to have us question why Refrigerator Perry got that touchdown. Then McMahon can say whatever he wants, but wow, what a miss. Uh, how? The Cubs are coming to St. Louis for the first time since 2019. I guess I guess I should rephrase that. The Cubs are coming to Bush Stadium to play a game for the first time since 2019. They came to St. Louis in 2020 and then were turned away um, because of the Cardinals' second COVID-19 outbreak that extended their delay and their absence from the schedule. But all of the games last year were played at Wrigley, which uh, meant that the Cardinals won a home game at Wrigley, as odd as that sounds. But it also means that like just, we just haven't seen the Cubs at Bush Stadium in a while. Um, they've changed how, I mean, are they a contender in a diluted division? How do you see them right now? 
I see them as a 500 team. They're the epitome of average. They will have good streaks. They will have down streaks. They'll have stretches where you think, boy, they could they could win a sneaky uh, playoff series with the you know if they get a couple good starts and Kyle Hendricks uh, can rediscover what worked and Adbert Alzali can get hot and these kinds of things or or they can go through stretches. You're like they are never going to hit the baseball again. They're going to strike out more than any other team in the league and boy are they mismatched offensively so they are up they are down they are wildly inconsistent but I think they're dangerous I mean they're dangerous because when you have a core that still includes Chris Bryant playing at an MVP level Javi Baez who is still streaky as ever and Rizzo and and Contreras then you have to respect this team as being capable of going on the kind of run that can hurt you so they're not uh, they're not going to be overwhelming uh, for any opponent in any stretch because I think their their bullpen is young, improving, but probably too early to say that they have you know earned the benefit of the doubt in their starting rotation up and down and and so that is that is who the Cubs are right now heading into St. Louis. In your opinion, what should they do? Should they? just move on from this core? Should they identify one of these guys to keep two of these guys to keep um, and, and keep it going? I mean, do they need to hit a reset button or should they commit and be the the Bryants for his career? Well, Jed Hoyer referred to it as trying to thread the needle in 2021. And I think they're waiting to find out what direction and how delicate that's going to be and difficult that will be to do. Um, they're waiting for a sign. And so far, this team has been decidedly kind of in the middle of the road, so they haven't really – they're still treading water. This is what I would do. I know Chris Bryant's contractual realities, and I know who his agent is. Mm-hmm. I also know that Chris Bryant is a rare player and that you're going to want to trade somebody. You're going to want to trade him or one of your guys so you get prospects in return so one day they can grow up and beat Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant's value is in his versatility. It is in his approach, and he has re – he has reinvented ways to be – he did a swing in the offseason. He knew what weaknesses were emerging. He knew what wasn't going right, and he changed it. I would do all that I could organizationally to keep him in Chicago. I would probably then – obviously, Anthony Rizzo might be more affordable. His lower back may make him you know, harder to drive a hard bargain, so he may be a guy you keep. I think two of the three – you keep in Chicago because you want to kind of hit a, a soft, a soft relaunch, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't start over again because that is too painful. And frankly, you're in Chicago. Don't be the Kansas city Cubs. And that's the way I referred to them in the off season when they started <laughs> this gallery dump. And that's not any disrespect necessarily, but you are a mar- big market team with a payroll that you have, you know, t- something to be proud of in the last five years or so. Don't stop now. I mean, you you have to try to you continue to spend, even though you have had the kind of losses during the pandemic that every team experienced. You cannot just abandon this this kind of direction because of you failed to strike long term deals with these guys when maybe you were in a better position to do so. So I would keep Bryant. I would try to keep one of the two others. You might have to say goodbye to Javi Baez at some point. Maybe that's a trade piece. I'm not sure, Derek, but I think that. As well as Chris Bryant has played, I would hate to see them lose him for nothing. In the way that you know, you look at the Nationals and what they did with Chris, with Bryce Harper, and that's that's the biggest parallel right now that people have begun to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's 
Well, obviously they share the same agent, Scott Boris. Um, yep. They both have the MVPs. There's a lot to uh, a lot of similarities. So by that measure, then I guess Bryant would end up with the Brewers because that's <laughs> where Harper. Oh my gosh, Harper should move north. Yeah, well, he's not going to St. Louis because he would be too bored, right? That's right, he right. Yeah. He would be too bored. Whereas, yeah. yeah, whereas Bryce Harper was, you know, was at least interested in coming to a baseball city. But you know, goodness for you know, that's all right. I think the Cardinals have a third baseman here for. That's for it. A I was long, saying you're long. pretty set there. Although yeah. you know what, there the, the ironic thing is, Chris Bryant has played fewer games at third base than he has in the outfield this year. That's yeah. how. <laughs> so he's no, he's no longer. He is the super. Utility superstar is the way that they've begun to refer to him here in Chicago. Oh, that's good. So he's like Ben Zobrist or Mega what? Ben Zobrist, Mega Ben Zobrist. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty Little good. Popping his bat, maybe. So, so the idea would be to like have Javi Baez get on a hot streak and then possibly trade him. That would be stunning, but you could defend it, right? I could defend trading Javi Baez easier than I could defend trading Chris Bryant. And I'm saying that today as we sit here just because of the respective starts of both guys. But yeah, I think that if you're committed to trading one of those guys, it would be easier for me to understand given number one, the free agent market at shortstop in the offseason and what you may be able to do to replace him. And number two, just what what it would mean to get rid of Chris Bryant at this stage of his career as he seems to have refigured out and looks healthy again. So when that happens, he's going to be an MVP type of a player. Where, where do you think the Cubs went awry? Where do you think that, you know, that anticipation and really, I mean, that was a, a superb team that got a benefit of a rain delay, but also just, I mean, that was a really good team. They were great run prevention. They had the right amount of offense. You know, I, I will forever wonder how Anthony Rizzo, if this does happen, goes a career without winning an MVP. I mean, he's just a remarkable player. Um, you know, where did they go astray from? I mean, they, they, they didn't even win that many division titles in a row, let alone right. series titles. It's a great question. I, I think a couple of things. I think number one, and, and this is uh, you can relate to, but they never fully adequately replaced Dexter Fowler. Hmm. And what happened as a result of that was not just it was Dexter Fowler, but they never got somebody consistently at the top of their batting order that made everybody else fit in around him and and so the storyline for the cubs after the world series victory was that their offense was chronically broken and they never figured out a way to fix it they had guys who were swing and miss guys and they never were able to fill the lineup with with guys that were in contrast to that or, or mix and match guys or contact guys or on base guys always you know the, the feast or famine and they were too reliant on that i believe so that that's kind of where it started the other major problem against theo epstein and company and jed hoyer was part of this was they never successfully were able to draft and develop their own pitching talent yeah. and when that happens as you know derek because you know they ha that's what the cardinals have done so well over the years but when a team can't do that it, it changes the trajectory of of your your organization in a lot of ways and the cubs frankly, have suffered from that pretty badly. Yeah, the, the Cubs now have Dan Kantrovitz, which is fascinating, who helped orchestrate and ran the drafts for the Cardinals, for example, when they drafted Michael Waka, um, but also when they really started to excel at gathering college pitchers and some of these young pitchers, um, Jack Flaherty out of high school, who they could then um, develop 
through the system. So drafting is part of it. Developing is, is the next part of it, and that's been huge for the Cardinals. But Kantrovich is now at the wheel for the Cubs, so we'll see what he gets to do there. Your comment about Fowler is going to land like an uppercut to Cardinal Nation because the, if that's what you know, they're signing Dexter Fowler maybe was part of the reason they could move up the standings and the Cubs never got traction as the dynasty. That is fascinating. But I don't think I'm overstating that. And, and I don't think I'm doing anything except for almost repeating that because, yeah. you know, Dexter Fowler there in 2016 um, was as valuable to the Cubs. And there was sort of like the inside joke at, at, at a radio station was that if Chris Bryant was the MVP, Dexter Fowler was really the team MVP because of all that he represented to that team in the clubhouse and both in, and in the lineup. And, and they, you know, they let him go. And understandably, I guess at the time there were reasons, but they never replaced him and, and they never have had a consistent leadoff hitter since that point. Now they've tried a variety of different guys, everyone from Kyle Schwarber to Chris Bryant to Anthony Rizzo. And, and it just never has worked. And this year they've had a combination of guys trying again, Ian Happ, Nico Horner, and who knows who's going to be leading off this weekend. But uh, I just think that for an offense that was chronically broken, you got to, you know, pull open up the hood, look at the engine and understand what exactly went wrong. And that was the first, that was the first thing that went wrong and everything else that happened after that seemed to be connected. All right. Well, I want to bring our conversation back around to, to kind of, well, I guess to the Cardinals. I mean, there was a long time this winter where the biggest news in Chicago was also the biggest news for the Cardinals, and that was Hall of Famer Tony La Russa returning to the dugout. And then the Nolan Arenado trade happens. What was the perception up there as that happens, and how does that sort of shape your view of, of the Cardinals? It was like, oh, my gosh, they did it again, you know, <laughs> It was that was the guy that a lot of people thought maybe there was a rumor last year about the Cubs being involved yeah. in a trade conversation with with the Rockies, and you know that was when Chris Bryant was on the block. And then what it was was this sort of sense of uh, uh, admiration, I guess, grudging admiration from the Cub fan perspective. But like, how did the Cardinals go out and make this happen to where their now their corner infielders are institutional guys? They have. Now, you know, first and third, a combination is that's better than what the Cubs have, given where they were at the end of last season. How did that happen? Because yeah. it goes back to the 2016 disappointment. It was like you had Bryant, you had Rizzo, and you had Baez, and you thought your offense was going – your infield was going to be destined to be one of the great ones for the next five to eight years. And now this offseason you're looking at, boy, Cardinals got Arenado. How did they do that? Wow. So I want to ask you this then. So 10 years ago, it's now been 10 years since the Cardinals' last championship or we're coming up on it. Tony LaRusso was the manager uh, when they when they won in 2011, shocked the Texas Rangers down to their last strike, and then you know the David Freeze event happens, and he's never going to pay for a meal again in his hometown and will forever be part of World Series history and lore and highlights every year along with uh, Joe Buck's call. That happens. Ten years since, you know, they've been to the NLCS multiple times, um, most recently 2019. The Cubs have been there multiple times, um, but haven't had the same kind of steady drumbeat of division titles as the Cardinals. But they have the championship. They have the 2016 championship. Which is the better 
model do you think? The one where you sustain contention or the one where you have a peak that is so remarkable and memorable? That's a great question. I think that if I were running an organization, I would want the sustained success. And I can tell you that I think that's better, not only because that may be the way I think, but I also think that was the that was the goal of the Cubs. They did not set out when Theo Epstein arrived in October of 2011 to do anything except for sustained success. Now, you with that, you, the expectation and the assumption was they're going to win a championship or two along the way. But that 2016 team was so special and, and so indelible and what it accomplished in the, the drought that it ended. Yeah, but that was nobody's going to ever begrudge anybody from, from thinking that was the, the highlight of their sports fandom. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that you would want to have uh, you would want to have an ability to do that again or to be in a position to do that again more consistently than the Cubs, frankly, have shown. So if I were choosing between the two, it's a difficult one because of how special that season was and how those moments are in our memory. But I do think I would want to sustain the success over time to be that kind of an organization, the model of consistency. I wonder if distance changes that. Like I sense some urgency with the Cardinal fan base, but they expect to win every year. And there's always that urgency to win. If they lose, you know, opening day, I, I joke that they can't play in the Orange Bowl. And they're really frustrated that they won't get that chance at the national championship trophy um, just because they're they're They've lost. They can't go 162 and oh, but but there is a sense that the further away that championship gets, the more the urgency is for that peak, that adrenaline rush of the one and not the sustained like physical excellence and, and strength of contending every year. And I also wonder if maybe that's what brought Tony back to managing. Is it been a while since he had a championship? And he's stumbled a bit at other places. And if maybe that's what he's chasing. And I think he, he he can say that he's about to stumble into a championship here. And I don't think that I choose that verb accidentally. He could mm-hmm. definitely stumble into a championship here because it's been a stumble out of the gate for Tony La Russa and the White Sox. This is a team that's dynamic. Um, they're the best team in the American League right now. I think they're going to they're going to spend the summer looking like they're the best team in the American League at the top of the standings. And then we get to the postseason. And maybe by then, all this will be a memory. And Tony La Russa will have hit his stride. And the reason he's here, the reason Tony the, the reason Tony La Russa was brought out of retirement by Jerry Reinsdorf was not for now. That's probably why Jerry's in his office laughing, chuckling, and thinking, what are these guys talking about? He's here for October. He's here to pick the right bullpen guy. He's here to fill out the lineup for October, and maybe by October this will all make sense more so than it does right now. David, thank you so much for joining me. That's David Haw of Mully and Haw, the morning drive time show on 670 The Score there in Chicago. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. you tell people about our sponsor. Imagine your home totally organized, Closet by Design of St. Louis. Help get organized today with 40% off plus 15% off and get free installation. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BYDESIGN. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN today. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Again, you can listen to David every weekday morning there at 670 The Score in Chicago. It's available online. And I'm thrilled to hear. I, I knew you were writing there occasionally. And I, I'm thrilled to hear that, too, because I really, I just genuinely appreciated your approach as a sports columnist. David, I, I don't know if I've told you that enough. 
privately, personally. Um, but I just was amazed. And I also just really appreciated getting a chance to spend some time and see you uh, work, not just in a in a press box, but see you hunt down stories there as, as we were in Havana. That was a great time. And thanks so much for joining me here. Thanks, Derek. That was a lot of fun. It was a great trip. And I learned how good of a t- photographer you are, too. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The only time I'll ever have a photo on the front page of USA Today. There you go. That's right. Thanks a lot. Thank you.